Miss the show? No worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. What does loneliness look like? A new study shows the brains of those isolated during this pandemic are starting to actually show the effects. We'll talk to the author of that study. We'll get a look inside the world of a Canadian fashion billionaire now charged with serious sex crimes. He's just the latest to join this billionaire perverts club. And what exactly is the strategy with COVID-19? Because if it's to get to COVID-0, you better be prepared to give up all your rights and stay locked inside. Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. I'm listening. I think we have to have something that is truly going to apply across the entire region because I think people are finding it too easy to move back and forth and do things we're discouraging them from doing. And I think that's not helping us. Uh, I think that we have to uh, look at uh, some of the things that they've done, for example, in Quebec with respect to saying in a period of time that will be quieter for the economy and for business generally to say to people that we, we don't need you uh, to be going to work unless you absolutely positively have to go to work as a frontline uh, worker. I mean, it's some of those very same heroes of ours that are being put at risk by some of the behavior. What we need are less restrictions from those in charge and instead a strategy other than crushing our economies with shutdowns. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, December 16th. Here we are on this Wednesday, midweek. I think a lot of people are heading into that last week, assuming you still have a job. But uh, Friday, yes, it marks the day the kids finish school. And then, of course, we hunker down for what should be an utterly depressing family-free Christmas um, that's looking darker by the day. But, you know, I mean, some people will follow the rules. Others won't. But either way, we are headed to more lockdowns because uh, the 28-day gray zone is supposed to end Monday. But then you see today's record-breaking numbers, and it's very clear that's not going to happen. In fact, John Tory stated, as you've heard, he wants much bigger lockdowns that go further and wider. And in another signal that uh, <clears throat> we could be looking at other lockdowns, um, I got a, you know, a note from my son's school today advising me that he'll come home with a special package of work and word to hold on to that should they have to go online after the holidays. So the red flags they are are waving. My question is why? I mean, it's clear that these loophole riddled partial shutdowns, are done, they're not stopping cases from surging. It also confirms, though, that it's not the small businesses and restaurants that are the problem. They're just the sacrificial lamb. And Tory, as you heard, you know, he's looking at Quebec, hinting, hey, we should do that. Um, and what they're doing, and they announced yesterday, is that uh, all office workers in both private and public sectors, they're going to start working home, from home starting December 17th all the way through to January 11th. And non-essential businesses, albeit I'd love to know, what's a non-essential business? Anyone who produces money for the economy, provides jobs, is essential in my eyes. But they'll be closed across Quebec December 25th to January 11th with high schools given an extended break from December 17th, also to January 11th. And, you know, it, it, it just didn't have to be this way. It shouldn't be this way. And small businesses should not be further punished for what's not their fault. And, you know, I'd love to know, what are the feds and the provincial governments going to do to help them? Because the loans and the aid programs in place are not nearly enough to cover what businesses have been robbed of during Christmas sales and, and months of these crushing 
restrictions and instability. And you look at the cost. I mean, just since the start of the lockdowns, 10,000 restaurants have shuttered in this country. They announced Franz, Franz, which has been in Toronto forever, like a breakfast place in downtown Toronto. It's the latest to announce, yeah, we can't survive. And that's pathetic, sad. So if politicians are going to continue using shutdowns as their strategy, then I think they have an obligation to make these businesses whole, period. And I say that as a fiscal conservative. It pains me, but you've got to make them whole. I mean, you handed $9 billion to students, and then you've given bits and pieces for the sector's hardest hit that are driving our economy or supposed to be. I mean, give me a break. There will literally be none of them left by the time these dodos in charge get their crap figured out. But, you know, why do we keep accepting lockdowns as the answer? Why, why do we never hear demands for actions on things like widespread rapid testing and tracing? Like ever. I mean, you hear me. I talk about it all the time. And what we never get is action on something that could actually slow the spread and let us live with the virus. It's a question I keep asking. And today I am not alone. I'm not sure he's asking for the right thing in that broad lockdowns are harmful. We know this. We had to do it in the spring and it was the right thing to do in the spring and it worked in the spring. We have learned a lot about COVID. We need to use that learning to be more targeted. And so I think rather than trying to lock more things down, I wish that Mayor Tory would advocate, and I think he is, but maybe advocate more, to get resources that we need to target in neighborhoods, to test in schools, to test in high-risk workplaces, uh, to be able to offer programs and isolation services where they're needed. So there's a lot we could do that's targeted that I think wouldn't inflict the same kind of pain on everybody. Gee, those are some great ideas. So that's a Colin Furness, who's a health advisor, um, who basically is saying everything that I've been preaching and droning on about, and yet it just doesn't go anywhere. And the Trudeau government, I mean, they should be questioned about this because they ordered a measly 5 million rapid tests so the whole country can share. And I'd love to know, like, where are they? Where's the outrage? Because no one's demanding them to explain where it is. I mean, our kids should not have to be preparing for online learning because we should have rapid testing in every school by now. You know, we shouldn't have to destroy our economy. We should have enough rapid testing that no, it's not perfect, but it certainly would help and it would uh, slow down cases as it has done in many European countries. You know, the most vulnerable people would not die alone if we had rapid testing in place in every long-term care facility. I don't understand how it's even possible this far into this thing that that's not happening. I It, it befuddles me. You know, it's not enough for politicians to say, hey, we've got rapid testing now. It's a real game changer. Well, where the hell is it? <laughs> Nowhere I can find or you can find. No one I know has seen it. You know, we've just crossed the 2100 threshold here in Toronto. And we don't even know if that's accurate because we don't do competent or even aggressive tracing. So how is it that elected officials can demand more shutdowns when they themselves have totally lost control on tracing that they were supposed to be in charge of and lost control? You know, they keep asking us to do our part, but they're not doing theirs. So they have no right to wag their fingers in surprise when people start acting like, you know, oh, yeah, people, you know, doing what people do in a democratic country. So unless the plan is, you know, to bring in the army 
lock us in houses as they did in China when they were welding the doors shut. Or I don't know, everyone wants us to do what Australia did. Well, if you want to know what Australia did, they brought in draconian measures where cops were going into people's houses and dragging them out for not wearing a mask. You know, unless they're willing to go all that, you know, far, then people here are going to continue to behave like people who have, you know, lost faith in the lack of leadership because they feel like they've dropped the ball. And frankly, on many levels, they have. Because we're needlessly killing businesses, you know? We are, I think, recklessly creating a mental health crisis. Suicide rates are, are spiking. We are creating illnesses and basically killing our entire society because the only option these experts have is to just keep shutting things down. And why? Well, because they can't figure out a strategy to live this thing like, oh, I don't know, demand that the federal government give them the resources that we were all promised. And here's another strategy. You know what? It's time to drop these meaningless talking points. I think those in charge should just be honest with Canadians. We can handle it, but just be honest with us. Because... You kind of put us here. All right, welcome to this uh, Wednesday here on the show. And the question is, what does loneliness look like? And I think it's a good question to ask as more and more of us are being told, you know, stay home. And then you've got many find themselves completely, utterly isolated from the world. And while all the attention deaths, I think we're ignoring the other effects COVID policies are causing to people. Things like mental health issues, anxiety, suicide, which is going up, opiate deaths. But what does loneliness look like? Well, a team of Canadian researchers studied the brains of lonely people and found that their brains are actually different from those who don't experience loneliness regularly. Professor Danilo Stock is the study's senior author. He joins us now. He's the associate biomedical engineer over at uh, McGill University, the Neuro and Quebec Artificial Intelligence Institute. Wow, that is a title you uh, worked long and hard to earn, correct? <laughs> it took some time, yeah. <laughs> the longer, the longer the title, the uh, the more accolades you have. Uh, what what does a lonely brain look like when you saw the results of these MRIs? Um, we looked at the brain really three different ways, um, and we confirmed the same conclusion across all these three windows into the brain. And that is that um, the the most evolved regions of the brain, the higher association cortex. This is really what is most implicated in loneliness. And what was the age category that you studied? It doesn't matter. Is it uh, older brains, younger brains, or were the results, you know, right across the board? Uh, the age range is un unusually large, from forty to seventy years to at recruitment time, um, because that is data from the so-called uh, UK Biobank, which is the largest uh, biomedical data set that exists. Um, so those are statements from our study that uh, apply to people from 40 to 70, um, but a similarly large data set doesn't exist for even older or younger people. And when you talk about someone who is lonely, I mean, what are we talking about as far as periods of time? Mm, so in our study, the, the basis of our study is the question, do you often feel lonely? Yes or no? And just with the answer to this simple question, 
um, we ran the entire study. So um, what we investigated is not so much the momentary form of uh, loneliness, but loneliness as a trait, as a recurring theme of one's life and experience. Okay. And so given we're in a pandemic and we have people who have been completely isolated for huge chunks of time, be it the elderly, maybe locked away in long-term care, or maybe someone who lives in a condominium, someone who doesn't have family, um, I take it that had a vast imprint or impact on, on the kind of results you would see, let's say, to a normal year. Um, so what we can say is that... Um, Many findings from psychology, which were found outside of neuroscience or brain measurements, we do see that this directly relates to our findings. So let me give uh, a few examples. Um, we know that lonely individuals tend to, for example, anthropomorphize their pets. So that means they interact with a catalog, uh, maybe in a way as if they were human agents. Lonely mm -hmm. people tend to do that more. Another example is uh, lonely individuals tend to regurgitate, ruminate more in social events from the past. And lonely individuals also tend to have uh, intense relationships with protagonists and characters on their favorite sitcom, for example. All these um, behavioral tendencies involve imagining social experience that is not present in the actuality of the environment. So, so in, in other words, they make up a fictitious word. They make a like yes. start having conversations with people or, or they start talking to the TV now. Some would say, okay, maybe they're schizophrenic, but that's not the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I think you're exactly right. Um, so the, the, the parts of the brain um, that we find to be the lonely brain, um, they are very well known to be involved in imagination of things, events, contexts that are not present in the, in the environment. And so if there is um, a scarcity of social experience, then we speculate the brain may tend to make them up. Entertain itself. Yes. So that's, that is the main conclusion from, from our study. And we find indicators for this in brain structure, in functional coupling, how certain parts of the brain are communicating with each other, as well as uh, white meta fiber tracks, so the major cables of how brain regions are connected. All these three different um, variants of, of brain measures, they all tell the story. And so when it comes to your research, um, does loneliness uh, have adverse health effects other than, you know, uh, causing things like depression or um, maybe lead to anxieties or mental illnesses? But does it have over time, long periods, adverse health effects on people? Yeah, absolutely. So there's really a whole array of health outcomes and consequences um, that may be underestimated. Um, so it's really not just a psychological condition, loneliness, or perceived social isolation. Mm -hmm. It's really something that has an impact on uh, various systems and organs of the body. So, for example, we think that a regular social interaction um, provides a certain amount of intrinsic reward. So when we talk to people and meet friends, um, all these events provide a certain form of reward. So if this is not there anymore, 
we think that humans tend to search for other forms of reward. And some of those um, are probably um, drug-related. So lonely people tend to smoke more. Mm-hmm. Lonely people tend to drink more. Um, so this is, this is one example. This downstream, of course, um, increases other risks, uh, such as uh, Alzheimer's-related dementia. Okay. All right. All right. So when you hear, because, you know, we don't really hear of the collateral damage with COVID, and I'm sure in time the numbers will start to reveal themselves as to what the costs were of these lockdown measures. You know, when we hear the politicians say, you know, just this Christmas, just stay home, don't go visit anyone, don't do anything, there's always next Christmas. I mean, the reality is for some people there won't be a next Christmas because for a lot of people it's a very, very lonely um, time of year. Do you get concerned when you hear politicians kind of uh, playing down, uh, don't worry about it, we can do it again next year? Well, I think I think this is more of a public health or epidemiological um, question. Um, I mean, as, as kind of kind of, and then B, I would say it makes a lot of sense to um, respect physical distancing, and that's very hard. But um, I agree that we also need to take into account which strata of our society may be perhaps even more or disproportionately affected by these right. measures. And so there's another example, yeah. uh, the, the elderly homes. So mm. um, older people, they may not be able to the same extent to uh, replace real world social interaction with um, social media and other technical services. And uh, that may be one example where it may be important to truly help and um, be active in making sure that um, certain people um, are not left out. It's a fascinating study. I worry about the long-term effects. And just quickly before I let you go, Professor, can you reverse loneliness any kind of damage that may have been caused for it can it be can you replenish it in changing your behaviors excellent question um there are some studies that go a little bit in this direction in uh, animals and humans um so we we know for example that um children who who grow up without a regular family um who have certain forms of social stimulation that are less present than for an an average child, if um, orphans do get adopted by a regular family and develop regular relationships to um, their foster parents, they do catch up with the general population in terms of like cognitive performance and social behavioral capacity and so forth. So that may may seem far-fetched, but I think that is some of the best evidence that uh, humans can overcome periods of um, scarce social attraction. Fascinating work, all leading somewhere uh, that'll be very important. I appreciate you uh, taking us through your uh, findings. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is uh, Professor Stuck uh, joining us here today. So yeah, there's going to be a whole lot of collateral damage out of this thing that we won't learn for years likely, but there is a price to be paid for all this isolation we're being forced into. All right, great to have you on this very, very cold Wednesday. And uh, there is nothing fashionable about the charges now facing Peter Nygaard. And a lot of folks don't know who he is, mainly because his fashions were utterly hideous. 
But somehow this Canadian icon managed to build a billionaire fashion empire, cloaking himself with uh, fashion models, you know, money, mansions all over the place, including this palatial paradise that he built himself in the Bahamas. But um, in recent years, this 79-year-old has been the center of huge lawsuits from up to 57 young women, many of them just girls, and a lot of them very impoverished young women who alleged they were sexually assaulted by him or trafficked. And now he is formally charged and faces extradition to the United States, where if he is found guilty, he could go to jail for life. Melissa Cronin is the author of Predator King Peter Nygaard's Dark Life of Rape, Drugs, and Blackmail. She joins us now. Good to have you. Thank you so much for having me. You know, these allegations and these stories have been around for years. It's a very open secret. Uh, you know, these women who have come forward to speak, some of them as young as 14. Um, and they allege, you know, that he used his power to prey on them, to to offer them promises of, um, you know, becoming models or stars. And yet it's only now that charges are laid. How did How did it go on for so long? It's true. I mean, the first time that Peter Nygaard was arrested on rape allegations was actually way back in 1980. The case dissolved at the time because the accuser, when she got on the stand, declined to testify. And, you know, we can only speculate why that happened. But the Mm. fact is that these rumors have dogged him since then, I mean, over decades. And like you said, it was in some circles an open secret. Um, You know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that phrase in conjunction with other accused sex predators in recent years. But luckily, you know, the open secret is now coming out into open court and hopefully he's going to be facing justice for what he's allegedly done. Yeah. And he made an appearance in a Winnipeg court on Tuesday, which has got to be his worst nightmare because he's now in Canada. It's the dead of winter. He is still incarcerated and uh, and it'll be very difficult for him to get back to Bahamas, where I think he'd probably rather be right now. Yes, it definitely is not speak to be showing up in court. Um, his appearances yesterday were not in line with, you know, how he normally would look on a red carpet either. Um, but he is in prison right now in Winnipeg, and he's going to be there for a while. He'll be there over the holidays. His bail hearing is not until January 13th. So that's the first date where he could potentially um, get out of prison. But the reality is he's not going to be going to the Bahamas anytime soon, even if he is released, because there's a warrant out for his arrest there as well. And there has been for several months, even before these latest charges, um, Those Bahamian charges are on something completely unrelated, but, you know, his circle is getting smaller and smaller, and he's not really got many places to turn right now. Yeah, I mean, his own sons, um, I don't think a lot of people know, I don't know how widely reported it has been, Um, his own sons have lawsuits against him, alleging that he arranged when they were teenagers for women to, well, they say rape uh, them when they were young. Um, and so he, he doesn't seem to have a lot of family support behind him. Right. And, you know, that shocked even me when that news came out, um, because obviously I had known that he was estranged from his sons, but the extent of their relationship was really just disturbing to learn. And that's really only the tip of the iceberg. I've heard from other sources in his inner circle that have told me really disturbing things about his relationships with other family members. Um, and so, 
You know, now one of his former girlfriends, Sulin Medeiros, is being sued in court also for her alleged role in his scheme. And he doesn't really have that many friends on his side standing up for him. Um, He does have his longtime attorney, Jay Prober, who's been with him for many years. And he's certainly up for a fight. He's already saying that he's going to try to have the bail hearing moved up. Um, But, you know, it doesn't really look good. No, it does not look good. And uh, we're in a different times, obviously, since uh, Jeffrey Epstein's arrest. And then, of course, he's he's dead. But then his girlfriend being, um, you know, thrown in jail. I mean, this billionaire's perverts club seems to have uh, run out of luck. Um, you know, and Prince Andrew was a friend of, of Nygaard. I mean, there are pictures of them uh, on the island kind of touring around. I mean, <laughs> I got to be thinking that that Prince Andrew may be getting a little nervous. He essentially, I don't think at this point, could probably leave Britain. Mm. Yeah, you're so right. And it is it is because there's been a shift in the culture. You know, I've been I was reporting on Jeffrey Epstein back in 2004 when he was a free man. Nobody seemed to care. And, you know, when I released my book in February, Peter Nygaard was still you know, walking streets of of Winnipeg. Um, But it is a cultural change that's happened. And it is the Southern District of New York that is really pushing to go after these people in power. Um, If I were Prince Andrew, a friend to both of these men who've been taken down by the SDNY, I would certainly be, you know, shaking in my royal slippers because the fact that the SDNY is going as far as to extradite Peter Nygaard from Canada to face justice for these allegations is very unusual. And they've already indicated that they're pushing for a 60-day timeline, which Hmm. is incredibly accelerated. Normally, it can take years. So it's almost to me like that could be a message to Prince Andrew. If they're going to extradite from Canada, it's not so much of a stretch to think that they might be able to do so from the UK, too. Well, it speaks to the severity of the charges. I mean, Meng Wanzhou of the Huawei, you know, um, executive, I mean, they're trying to get an extradition hearing, which is expected to last a couple of you know, months, if not years. So if they're pushing for 60 days for Peter Nygaard, that um, that tells you that they plan to be very aggressive because an extradition hearing can take or a process can take a very long time. But he is accused of some serious, serious charges. And I guess at the basis of this, ele- uh, you know, allegation, which your, your book uh, delves into is are these, you know, pamper parties at, at his California mansion, the Canadian mansion, his Bahamian estate, where apparently he, you know, would um, allegedly ply his alleged victims with drugs and alcohol, then violently assault them before passing them around to, to their friends. And the, the alleged victims have come forward and said what, what was done to them destroyed their lives. It's so true. These allegations cross many different decades, many different borders. And these pamper parties were happening in the Bahamas. They were happening in Los Angeles. They were happening in Canada. They were even happening on his private plane. Now, I've seen photos of the events that were happening on his plane. And suffice to say, they were too X-rated to publish in my book. Um, So this is there's certainly a lot of material for the SDNY, the FBI and the NYPD to dig into. And. You know, if we're still, we still get to see the evidence that they've they've gathered, but given the severity of the charges, the extent of the charges, and certainly also the parallel civil cases that have been filed, um, Mm. it's just, you know, it's just a tsunami of allegations that's happening right now. And and it really doesn't seem like there's any way to, to squeak out of this one.
Yeah, and certainly enough for another part uh, to another book, uh, because, you know, he, he had friends in very high places. I mean, George Bush, I mean, actors, and, and I'm not suggesting Mr. Bush did anything wrong, but I mean, the caliber um, of the, the friends he had in very high places is is long and deep. Yes, it's, it's absolutely true. And I am actually working on a new project to delve into that and kind of, you know, the things that are developing right now, because... I started this project in February when um, the raid occurred, and then obviously we had the COVID lockdown that happened so shortly after that. So, um, you know, there's still a lot of dark corners that I'm going to be digging into, and there's certainly more to come on this story. Fascinating. The book is Predator King, Nygaard's Dark Life of Rape, Drugs, and Blackmail. The author is Melissa Cronin. So if you're looking to get an update on this case and why it is such a big headline or should be in this country, uh, that is a book that is still available and you can dive in if you want to kind of catch yourself up to speed. Melissa, thank you very much. Thank you. Please stay home. Please, when you go out for the absolutely essential things you have to do, like shopping, and some people do have to go to work, wear a mask, wash your hands, don't go to crowd scenes, do not entertain people other than those you live with. There's lots of people that, and those who live alone, we've made some exceptions, all of us have for that. Is just stay home an actual strategy? No. But it, uh, it seems to be the only plan that those in charge have, which tells us that they're not in charge at all, because if they were, then I don't know, they'd have prepared for the second wave, you know, that they warned us about. But they didn't. Not one level of government has put in the measures other countries like Taiwan put in place. I mean, the feds didn't close borders to travel. We know this because we've got COVID cases coming in all the time. And they didn't trace or test the millions of truckers coming in and out of Canada feeding our supply chains. They haven't, of course, ordered enough rapid testing. That should by now be everywhere. And on the provincial and municipality level, I mean, we still don't have adequate testing. We don't still have adequate tracing in place. We still have no field hospitals built to deal with the, you know, threat of overcapacity. And then when it comes to enforcement, I mean, it's a complete joke. So here we are, nine months in. I think what's clear is that we have no strategy to live with or end this pandemic. Alex Vizina is the CEO of Prepared Canada Corp., also has a graduate degree in disaster and emergency management. Good to have you. And um, kind of sounds like we don't have a strategy. Uh, I don't know if I'd agree that we don't have a strategy. Um, my uh, my belief on this, and I've, I've spoken about this publicly uh, multiple times, uh, is that we're using the wrong strategy among given options that we could be doing. And then for this strategy in particular, we're not doing the correct tactic that we should be doing if we are adopting this strategy. Bit of a nuanced position, I know, but um, I'll see how much detail I can get in for, into for you in the time that we have. And you wrote about this in the in the Toronto Sun, basically saying, you know, if we're going to get zero COVID, like in other words, if we're going to do what Australia did or, or New Zealand, which is to wipe out all the cases, then we have to put much different policies in place. And I don't know if we can, because we always hear that as the example cited, but we are so much different than those two countries. Um, well, I mean, that's that's part of it. And also we're seeing in, um, in, uh, in those countries, specifically in uh, Japan and Korea now, uh, Korea is a better example than Japan, because Japan didn't really lock down. Um, but Taiwan, um, and really Korea, um, we're seeing uh, cases spike up again, and they're they're starting to see uncontrolled community spread. So there's some question as to whether or not it really, really works there as well. Um, but uh, what we're really running into, and this has been said multiple times uh, on the media and everywhere, is uh, at some point the, the public gets tired, and mm-hmm. they will not comply with 
um, an order given by the government um, unless it is enforced with draconian measures that are frankly beyond what we're willing to tolerate in a free society. Um, right. I mean, John Tory's message today is just just stay home, just stay home. But clearly this strategy is not working because at the end of the day, we are human in a democratic country, last I checked. Well, the democratic country is the hardest part of that. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the human thing, you can do a lot when you don't have a democratic country. But uh, my, uh, my, my industry is very, very divided on this issue, and it's a, it's a fairly complex issue, which usually requires some fairly long answers. Um, so really, if you have a specific question for me, and we can go back and forth rapid mm-hmm. fire, I'll do my best to get as much as I can in the time that we have. Okay, so so we're being told lock it down. I mean, the, the the mayor of Toronto said, you know, that he's asking for more restrictions. So once his 28 days is up, he wants much more than just a regional approach because he doesn't want people moving from Toronto right. to okay. Hamilton where there's right. not a lockdown. And, and that's pretty hard to do unless you bring in the military and make us a police state. Well, um, I mean, yes and no, but pretty much. Uh, the, uh, the, another thing on that, I, that I think is important to reference is early on in the pandemic in the Canadian and Ontario context, uh, we, we, we said and we viewed that the tale of two provinces thing was going to be a problem. And we did lock down, um, not to the degree that is needed, according to every health expert that you talk to, um, to the degree needed, but we did lock down everyone equally because there was an understanding that if given the opportunity, uh, the malls in a region two hours out will extend their hours and people will go the distance to uh, to uh, inadvertently spread the virus, uh, like we're seeing this week um, with uh, reports that are coming around out around the Hamilton malls. Uh, so the the you have to lock everybody down together because, unfortunately, we're not an island, um, is, is what is necessary if you're adopting a lockdown strategy. But, uh, frankly, more broadly, there is an issue um, that, Locking down at all may not be um, the best decision in terms of reducing case counts because we're not willing to, I mean, you've illustrated it several times, basically put a tank in the streets. Um, And even if we did basically put a tank in the streets, the fact that really closing our border to the degree necessary, more Mm -hmm. akin to what an island could do, is basically impossible without shutting down the food supply chain and doing something close to causing a famine, um, because that's not really possible because we need our critical infrastructure to stay afloat. Um, Even an actual draconian lockdown wouldn't work the same way here that it would work in Australia or New Zealand. Right. And and so the... the you know, the obvious thing that pops into mind is, okay, then if we're going to keep the borders open, then you get the rapid testing in place. You make sure that people coming in and out of the border are traced very carefully, maybe set up a hotel where the, you know, the critical uh, truck drivers who supply our food chains and that uh, go to stay so that you keep the cases controlled. But we have done none of that. And and here we are. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So on the rapid testing thing, um, when people are pre-symptomatic because of the way viral load works, I'm going to try to give people stuff that they can Google because this gets kind of complex. Um, when, with the way the viral load works, um, when you're testing people who are pre-symptomatic, there's a pretty high false negative rate, meaning the test comes up showing that you don't have COVID when you actually do. Uh, so when you put people in a hotel, you need to do it for the two weeks so that you basically get them to the point where they're symptomatic or they would probably be symptomatic so that the, the test... Um, is as reliable as seeing if they have the sniffles. Uh, mm-hmm. Just just to get the point. So it's it's about doing that with every single person who crosses the border, which becomes near impossible very very quickly. Um, that's the that's the first major issue there. The second issue with putting in place significant testing that you're talking about, and this frankly isn't the fault of any current government. Um, 
the problem with that is we don't have the critical resources needed to run the tests. We're already at maximum testing capacity and have been for months. The most important resource being uh, the specialist technicians that are required to actually run these tests. Um, there is a back, uh, there's a, there, there's a waiting list to get into these programs and universities to train these people that are, you know, two, two plus year programs that has been in place um, for over a decade. And they haven't had the funding to get people into the programs that they want to get into to train them for an industry that was desperate to hire them even before COVID. Mm-hmm. So this isn't this is this is not a current um, government problem. This is frankly what happens in general in in my field in emergency or disaster management, where you don't spend the dollar earlier and you get forced spending a hundred later. Right. In other words, any of the recommendations made by SARS uh, were really just not ever going to be in place. But what I'm hearing from you is this notion of getting to zero COVID is impossible because of decades uh, being behind. And so what I think then is we need some honesty from all three levels of government and, and a way to live with this thing because we're not going to lock people down successfully unless we make ourselves a military uh, state. And so what would you be advising if you were asked about a strategy of how we live with this thing without killing the rest of our economy, without crushing well, mental illness a- until we get the vaccine? So so irrespective, and I mean, the, the vaccine conversation is its own eight minute plus conversation, but um, irrespective of the economy, uh, there is a serious argument that um, not locking down while doing it uh, while, while doing a very, very careful reopen strategy that um, incentivizes businesses to be safer, actually creates less cases than locking down. Um, it's similar to the public health argument for safe injection sites or the public health argument for um, uh, healthy sexuality, et cetera, where if your public is going to do are going to do the action that you don't want them to do anyways, then you might as well have them do the action in a supervised environment because it's better than a way that's unregulated. This is to say that there is a significant amount of public health literature, frankly, on looking at if we should have safe COVID party sites because we can't stop the parties. Right. Um, that yeah, type that, of yeah. idea. And it's a very, very complex issue that's very nuanced that cannot be done justice in an hour-long conversation, let alone eight minutes. So just keeping in mind, I realize what I just said there and the weight of that um, and that it does need further explanation other than just being taken on face value. So what you're saying is we're screwed. In, in general, yes, there is a possible light out there. But I mean, there, I can, we can have different conversations on the different ways that we are screwed. Um, but, you know... Uh, I, I, I said that to everybody last February, so. Oh, wow. It's time for a different conversation. So we will have you back for those conversations. Alex, I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. Alex Vazina is the uh, CEO of, um, he does uh, emergency management. And there you go. You got it. We're screwed. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday, starting 630 sharp here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.